Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to the first of our Epiphany series, The Practices of Jesus, Scripture, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses that's found on page 1503 in your pew Bibles, 1503. And I'll read that in a moment. Before I do, I'd like to just briefly introduce the sermon series that we'll be going through in Epiphany. Uh, so that's for the next two months. That'll be basically, it'll be January and February. We'll have the same sermon series. And it will focus on the life of Jesus. That's pretty typical for the Epiphany season here at LaGrave or at any church that observes the liturgical calendar. Um, so in Advent and Christmas, you talk about Christ's coming, so the mystery of his incarnation. In Lent and Easter, you talk about his death and resurrection, his great act of sacrifice on our behalf. Um, so those, those two events are obviously critically important in the Christian story, but all the stuff in between, all the things that Jesus did while he was on the earth are also really, really important too. So the, 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 his coming and his death and resurrection save us. All his life and the life that he lived while on earth teach us what it means to be human what it looks like to be a, a full-orbed human being. So we're going to look at the, his life in Epiphany, as we always do, and specifically, we're going to observe the practices of Jesus. We human beings are shaped by, and to a large extent, defined by our practices, our habits. Things you do every day, things you do every week, the things you do every year, over and over again, whether you choose them consciously or you just sort of fall into them, these repeated patterns shape who you are. They shape your instincts. So we're going to ask, what were Jesus' habits? What were Jesus' patterns? What were the things he did every day, every week, every year? And how did they shape his instincts? And as we watch that, hopefully ours will be shaped along with his. Today, we're going to think about Jesus' habit of Scripture. How did Jesus interact with the Bible? And to do that, we will look at this story, which in Matthew is really right at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan, so he's just received his commission for his ministry. Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then this happens. Listen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. 
All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't exactly say, but I I can't help wondering if Jesus was surprised and maybe taken aback by the way his ministry started. After all, he'd had this, this wonderful commission, right? His experience of baptism must have been so positive for him. He goes down to the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descends on him. The voice of his father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This tremendously positive thing. And what's the very first thing that happens to him? Out into the desert for 40 years. It's remarkable. You are my beloved son, wilderness. It's brutal, but it's also familiar because this is something that happens to all of us in our life sometimes. What frame of mind did those 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness with its fasting, what frame of mind would that have put Jesus in? The text says he was hungry, so we know that. That's not surprising, but he must have been more than just hungry. I think it's fair to say he was probably lonely after being by himself for 40 days and 40 nights. And I imagine he must have been utterly exhausted and completely tired. Lonely, hungry, and tired. What happens to our souls when we are lonely, hungry, and tired? What does being lonely, hungry, and tired do to our spirits? Nothing good. When we are lonely, hungry, and tired, that puts us in a spiritually vulnerable place and we become open to all kinds of temptations. We become much more susceptible to wrongdoing. An obvious example, when I'm lonely, hungry, and tired, and I bet you too, I'm irritable. I get angry easy. But it's not just anger. When you're in that frame of mind, other kinds of sins, bitterness, lust, Those are the sorts of things that rise up in us when we're in that weakened frame of mind. We're susceptible to temptation. So you can see that the devil's move here is kind of strategic. Jesus is hungry, lonely, and tired. He's in this weakened state, and bam, that's when the devil comes. That's when the devil hits him. And that, too, is true to life. It's when we're worn down and in a difficult place that temptation hits us with full force. So how does Jesus stand up to this temptation? In this weakened state, how does Jesus manage to resist the temptations of the devil? Scripture. The Bible, in this story, is what helps him to stand. Three times the devil comes to him, and three times Jesus parries the devil's assault each time with a quotation from Scripture. Scripture is woven deeply into the fabric of Jesus' life, so deeply that he is able to resist this time of temptation. Dale Bruner, the great commentator on the book of Matthew, puts it this way. Jesus was a man of Scripture. Jesus was a man of Scripture 
And these temptations were meant to teach us the truth of that fact. Jesus was a man of scripture. And where else do we see that in his life, in the gospels? An interesting thing. In his ministry, Jesus was not afraid to give commands and give instructions to his disciples and ultimately to us. He wasn't afraid to tell us what to do. So he would say, make sure you forgive your neighbor. I'm watching you, do it. He would say, make sure you take care of the poor. Turn the other cheek. There are all kinds of instructions, all kinds of specific life things that Jesus tells us specifically to do. But do you know what he never, ever tells us to do? Read your Bible. Study scripture. Go to Bible study. He never says that, ever. He doesn't need to. Because scripture is woven into the fabric of everything he does during his earthly ministry. During this week, I went back and I read the whole Gospel of Matthew, and I read it just to see how does scripture show up in Jesus' life. And it's amazing. Every single chapter, the Bible is somehow there. Sometimes Jesus quotes it. Sometimes he alludes to it. Sometimes he reenacts it. A lot of times he's debating the meaning of a scripture text with the, the Pharisees or the scribes. In every part of his life, scripture is at the center of who he is and how he lives his life. Jesus was a man of scripture. Jesus practiced scripture. In the rest of this sermon, I want to share with you three ways which we see in this text and in the Gospels, how Jesus practiced Scripture, how that rooted him, and how that same rooting might take place in our lives and in our practice. And the first thing I would like to say about Jesus' practice of Scripture is that Jesus used it to maintain his true identity. Jesus practiced Scripture as a way to maintain his true identity. Notice that in the temptations, what the devil is trying to do is to push Jesus off his true identity, especially in the first two, right? How do those temptations start? If you are the son of God. So the evil one's trying to sow an if in Jesus's mind. Jesus has just received his true identity in his baptism, right? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are the son of God, said the father. And now right after that, here comes the devil and saying, if... See, he's trying to push him off his true identity. This is what the evil one does. In our baptism, we receive our true identity. In our baptism, God says to you, you are a child of God. I'm your father. I love you. I love you so much that I sent my one and only son to die for you. This is who you are at your bottom. But then when we get into the, the, the rough and tumble of life, when we get into our wilderness places, the accuser's voice comes into our head and starts to offer us ifs. And we have these accusing voices questioning our true identity, saying things like, you're a failure. Nobody really likes you. You're making an absolute mess of your life. What you did, unforgivable. 
These voices come into our head and try to throw us off our true identity, and sometimes they come into our head so strongly that we feel like we're sinking under their weight. And these are not just voices that come to insecure teenagers. If one thing I've learned as a pastor, some of the most mature, some of the most accomplished and successful people you know feel the weight of these accusing voices questioning their identity. And the devil would like nothing better than to you, for you to take your bearings, for you to take your identity from these accusing voices. But when you practice scripture, when you read it and live it and let it seep into your being, it gives you an anchor, a place of resistance where you can parry these attacks. The accuser's voice says, you're a failure. But scripture says, I have called you by name and you are mine. When you walk through the water, I will be with you. Isaiah 43. The accuser's voice says, nobody likes you. Everybody's sick of you. But the voice of scripture says, the Lord takes great delight in you and he rejoices over you with singing. Zephaniah 3. The accuser's voice says, you, my friend, are a hopeless mess. But Scripture's voice says, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I forgive your iniquities and I remember your sin no more. 2 Corinthians 5, Psalm 103. When we practice scripture, we cannot stop these accusing negative voices in our head, but we can parry them and set them aside and remember who we truly are in our Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing that the practice of scripture helps Jesus to do and can help us to do is it can help us to properly interpret our times. We said Jesus is in the wilderness and he might be disappointed. He's in a difficult place. It's, it's, it's not clear that his ministry is going in the way that he thought it would. It'd be very easy for Jesus to say in this place, oh no, this is failing. Good is losing. Evil is triumphing. But scripture keeps him from this dark habit of mind. Helps him to, to look at the outside events and interpret them properly. We already said that Jesus quotes scripture three times to ward off the devil. Did you notice that all three scripture quotes are from the same book of the Bible? Do you know what book of the Bible that was? It's in your little notes at the bottom. Deuteronomy. Well, that's interesting. Deuteronomy. What's the context of Deuteronomy? Where are the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy? In the wilderness. Just like Jesus. Why do you think Jesus is in a Deuteronomy frame of mind? Could it be because he's thinking of his own situation and he's remembering those old stories and realizing that just as God brought the people of Israel through their temptation and trial in the desert into the promised land, so he will be brought through this trial, through this temptation into a new place for him? Could it be that he's using these old stories of Scripture to remind himself that the paths of God 
do not always go down sunshiny roads through easy places that sometimes they go through terrible dark valleys. And just because you're in a dark valley, it doesn't mean that you are abandoned. Scripture helps him to properly interpret what's going on right around him. It's the same thing that Jesus does on the cross. In his anguish on the cross, what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote of scripture. Psalm 22, verse 1. Now that psalm at the beginning is a psalm of lament. Jesus says those words because that's how he actually feels. He feels abandoned. But that's not the way Psalm 22 ends. You remember the way Psalm 22 ends? It starts with lament, but at the end it says, all the knees of the world will bow before the Lord for he has done it. It ends in triumph. So when Jesus speaks that word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It both expresses how he feels, but it also helps him properly interpret his times. As terrible as this moment is, this too will end in victory. This is so important. Because in the middle of your wilderness, in the middle of our troubles, in the middle of all the stuff, we can feel like it's all falling apart. But when we practice scripture, when we let it sink into our soul, when we learn the stories, when we learn the passages, when we learn the promises, we can remember that even if our path is in a dark place, that God leads his people through those dark places and into the light. In his book, The God of Weakness, John Timmer tells a story that comes from a time of persecution in the early Protestant Reformation. And some Protestants were persecuted because they had Bibles, because they had personal Bibles. And so to avoid persecution and to keep on hold on their Bibles, what they would sometimes do was hide them in hiding places, cracks and crevices in their home. And they uh, hid them so well that some of them uh, were not found until recent times. And when experts and scholars found these old Bibles and opened them and read them, they found an interesting phenomena. They realized that some of the most popular passages, some of the passages that had the greatest promises of God, for some reason, they were kind of smudged and almost illegible. They were extremely hard to read. And they couldn't figure it out. They said, well, why is it that, that these texts are all smudged up? And then they finally figured it out. Tears. The people under persecution had turned to those passages of promise over and over again. They wept over those texts and their tears had smudged the ink. They'd turned to those passages so that they could orient themselves in the midst of the trouble and know that their Lord would get them through. Scripture helps us to properly interpret our times. Final point. Jesus uses the Bible to understand and focus and direct his own mission. Okay, so there's sort of a three thing. The first one helps him understand who he is. The second use of Scripture helps him to interpret the times that are going around, on around him. The third one helps him to know where he's going and what his mission is. You don't see that so much in this passage, but you do see that lots in other places in the gospel, most notably in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus gets up at Nazareth to preach his sermon. He reads Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
He has anointed me to preach good news to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he closes the book, rolls up the scroll, and says, Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Which is Jesus saying, this is why I'm here. What I just read in Isaiah 61, that's my mission. To change people's hearts, to bring justice, to bring the year of the Lord's favor, to bring the year of Jubilee. That's my mission. Scripture gives him the vector of his life. You see the same thing at the end of his life. Matthew 26, right as he's being arrested in the garden to be led to be crucified, he says, these things have happened so that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Everything I did along the whole path was the vector of Scripture. Scripture directed his life. And so it is with us. As we go through our wilderness, as we go through the troubles of our life, there are alternate narratives and alternate stories that want to vector our lives in different directions. The direction of pleasure. Life is hard, so, you know, have as much fun as you can. Or, big one, the vector of self-preservation. Life is hard. The most important thing is that you save yourself and your family. But when you immerse yourself in Scripture, we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Tony Campolo tells a story about uh, a bishop, an orthodox bishop in World War II, whose name is uh, Bishop Metropolitan of, uh, or, you know, the Metropolitan is his title, Metropolitan Cyril. And he was a bishop during World War II in Bulgaria. Now, Bulgaria was started off the war kind of neutral, but started leaning towards the Germans. And as part of that lean, they agreed to have all their Jews put on trains and taken to the concentration camp. And some of the first Jews that were going to be transported came from metropolitan Cyril's area. And so he heard that, that his neighbors, his Jewish neighbors, were being rounded up and put on these trains. And it would have been very easy for him to vector his life in self-preservation and to say, oh, no, that's, that's terrible. Let me pray. But he didn't do that. He got up, got 300 of his fellow church members, and went down to the train station, walked right up to the Nazi guards with their guns, and banged on the side of the train and said, these people have got to be let out. And then history says, he also said this, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Does that sound familiar? I sure hope so. It was Ruth. That's what I preached on in Advent. He's saying, it's the words that, 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 that Gentile Ruth said to Jewish Naomi, promising to cling to her on the road to Bethlehem. So Metropolitan Cyril, the, the, those words of Scripture are so deeply embedded in him. He's saying to his Jewish friends, I'm like Ruth to your Naomi, and you will, I will not abandon you. I will cling to you. Those words of Scripture were so deeply embedded in him that in the time of crisis, he knew what to do. They vectored his life. As a result of his courage, through a series of events, the policy in Bulgaria was changed, and they backed off sending their Jews to the concentration camps. And as a result, Bulgaria is one of the few Eastern European countries where the population of Jews actually increased during World War II. 
when we practice scripture, gives us our vector, gives us our mission, gives us kingdom instincts. May the Lord keep us faithful in our practice of scripture and all our practices. But I need to say one more thing. As we go through this series, as we think about the practices of Jesus, and as I exhort you to these practices, we all need to remember that while our practices are important, the most important practice is not the practices that we do for Jesus, but the practice that he did already for us. We do our best to practice our faith, and we're called to do it, and we must do this. And in our practices, it's like we're trying to put on our garments of righteousness. That's a New Testament metaphor, right? We're trying to sew our garments of righteousness, get the seams right, get the fit right, become the people God means us to be. But the universal experience of doing that is we never get it right. The garment never fits. We never feel like we've got to accomplish. It always looks like a bit of a ragged thing that we're putting on. At the end of the story, we will see our Savior face to face. He will take this ragged garment that we've been trying to sew and he will give us his garment, his perfect righteousness, and it will fit us and in a twinkling of an eye, we will be the people he made us to be. May all our attempts to emulate his practices take place under the shelter of that great hope. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your life. It's so good to be able to look into your word and to see how you lived in this world, how you stood in the face of evil, um, how you reached out to others, your words, your deeds. We pray that you would be with us during these next two months as we look closely at them, and we pray that the grace of them and the goodness of them may seep deeply into us. And Lord, we pray that this initial putting on of your righteousness may just be a foreshadowing of that great day when we will be made completely new. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.